0: Alright, thanks guys. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. It's a valuable exercise for us to read through a passage like that because that's how initially Scripture was passed on within the church. In the early church, not everybody had a Bible that they brought. Rather, uh, they sat under the preaching and the teaching of the word. They heard the word read, which is why John writes, Blessed is he who reads this book, and blessed is everyone who hears this book and does what is written in it. In Revelation chapter 6, the tone of our study changes uh, rather, rather drastically. Um, as we've began this study, we, we've titled this uh, God wins. That's the study of, of, of the book of Revelation. God wins. Tonight, specifically, we are going to move into a section that is going to be the focal point for the rest of this book. Last week, we saw an introduction to the future events as we saw uh, the worship of God the Father and the worship of Jesus Christ, and we saw the scene in which the Lamb is worthy. That leads to the lamb being worthy to open the seals of the book, and that book is the book of the judgment of God. Tonight, in Revelation chapter 6 and 7, we begin to see the unfolding of the judgment of God. Tonight we see the unfolding of the judgment of God. You have heard uh, politicians make promises along the lines of the future being bright the future is bright they'll promise if you elect me if i am your leader the future will be bright the book of revelation has a very different message in the book of revelation the future is not bright. in fact it's the farthest thing it is a dismal message that we are going to see tonight and, and for several weeks as we continue through this book. So what we're going to title this tonight is, The Future is Dark. The future is dark. Revelation chapter 6 and 7 begin to show us that the world is not in the process of getting better. Rather, the opposite of tr- is true. Things are going to get much, much worse. The future is not initially bright. The future is very, very dark. And what we know of the book of Revelation from our previous studies is that this message of, of the darkness of the future of the world is meant to drive believers and those who, who claim to know Christ. It's meant to drive them to the church and to love one another. And it's meant to drive them to repentance and to faithfulness in the midst of trial. The pain and the suffering that is coming as God pours His judgment out on the world is meant to produce faithfulness and repentance in us. Well, we are now walking into the most the most difficult interpretational part of the Book of Revelation, and that is Chapter Six, all the way through um, all the way through the end of the book. the The beginning of this book is generally considered to be a little bit easier from an interpretational standpoint. This is where stuff, you picked up on it tonight, this is where stuff starts getting crazy. Like, stuff really starts going down in Revelation chapter 6. The question that we have to ask is, what on earth just happened in the text that we just read? I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that's going on, right? There's these four horsemen of the apocalypse, and and these horsemen are coming out, and they got riders, and there's death, and Hades, and and there's war, and there's this conqueror, and and we see these 144,000 people being chosen. We got these groups of people in heaven that are worshiping God. We're back in the worship of God scene. What on earth is happening? And that's a question that we're going to ask again and again through the book of Revelation. And here's something that's important for us to understand, and that is that there are various different methods of interpreting these sections of the book of Revelation. There are general schools of thought that determine when you come to the book how you process the information. I don't have these on your notes, uh, but but if you want to write these down, you're certainly welcome to. There's four schools of thought. The first one is... Preterist Preterist is the first school of thought in how to interpret the book of Revelation. The preterist view says that everything that we just read and everything coming in the book of Revelation, um, especially especially in chapters 6 through 16, have to deal specifically with the early history of the church. They would say that most of the book of Revelation is fulfilled by 70 AD when the temple is destroyed. This is a common view, that Revelation is written for the believers in the churches and everything that's talked about in the book of Revelation, they're going to experience in the next few years or they had experienced thus far in their life. That is called the preterist view. And so when they say there's four horsemen coming out in the first four seals, well, the question that they're asking is, what did this deal with in our lifetime? The Preterist view sees all of this as being fulfilled by the year 70 AD. The next view is the historist view. The historist view. The historist view says that the content of the book of Revelation is markers of, of the history of the church as a whole. And so as we read through the book of Revelation, these are all prophecies about what's going to happen throughout history. And so they may take one scene in the book of Revelation and say, oh, that's the, that's the persecution of the Jews by Adolf Hitler. And they may take another scene and talk about how that may be the United States of America. Th- this has actually been a common view throughout history, that the book of Revelation is pointing to, to the entirety of history. A third view is, is the idealist view. The idealist view says that the book of Revelation is the not referring to literal events at all but rather it's kind of referring to spiritual battles that are happening behind the scenes that that it's all illustrative not of physical battles and not of literal events but it's just illustrative of spiritual warfare that's taking place which kind of makes sense because there's some crazy stuff happening in here and it's a fair question to ask how could that even be real That then leads to a fourth view, and this is the view that I hold to. That is the view of of futurism. The futurist view believes that the contents of the book of Revelation, especially after chapter 3, are focused on what is yet to take place in history. That these are events, what what I've given you guys, is that the events of the content of Revelation surrounds the return of Christ. And that all of these events are still to take place in the future. We could give an extensive defense of all of those four views. It would be several sermons worth of content to do so. I want you all to know that when I come to the book of Revelation, I believe that this book is talking about a futurist view. Now, here's the key. I don't believe that the book of Revelation has enough information in it for us to make that conclusion on the book of Revelation itself. If all we had was the book of Revelation, I don't know that we could determine with confidence much of what's included within these pages. A conclusion that we need to have as we begin this study is that there are several other passages in the New Testament that I believe, and in the Old Testament, that I believe are more clear about the content of what's happening in these scenes. Those passages heavily, heavily inform my interpretation of the book. There's two passages, uh, two sections of scripture especially that inform my understanding of Revelation. The first one is the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, specifically chapter 9. In chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, we read about 70 weeks. Daniel's 70 weeks are an incredibly complex and difficult section of scripture. I believe that we can say with confidence what what those 70 weeks refer to. I don't have time to explain it to you right now. It's really detailed. But I want you to know that my understanding of the book of Revelation is heavily rooted in Daniel chapter 9. The other text that's heavily informing my understanding of the book of Revelation is, is the text that are known as the Olivet Discourse. That is the sermon or the, the, the communication that Jesus gave to his disciples on the Mount of Olives a week before he died. He was on the Mount of Olives, and three of the Gospels record what Jesus said when he was speaking to his disciples there. Those texts, the, perhaps, perhaps the most clear one is Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25. That talks about the exact events that we're going to see in this text tonight. Also, uh, Luke chapter 21 records the same events. Also, Mark chapter 13 records the same events. And those are all indicators that I believe help us understand the contents of the book of Revelation. Again, I would love to go into those. We're talking hours and hours of communication on what all those, what all those teach. Um, I want you to know that when I come to this book, I'm not just saying, Oh, okay, four horsemen, let's just, let's just call this guy the Antichrist. Let's call this guy war and let's call this guy famine. All of this is informed heavily by other passages of scripture that I believe help us understand this book. In fact, I believe that when John is writing this and seeing this, that it's very probable that these are the scenes, even, even of the time that he spent with Jesus, when Jesus taught about these things, these things are coming to John's mind. So, I am not preaching those passages, but they heavily inform how I interpret it. Here is the conclusion that I draw based on Daniel chapter 9 and the Olivet Discourse in regards to what we're going to call the tribulation. Di- Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 16, all is about the tribulation. Here is how, what I believe the tribulation is. The tribulation is a seven-year period of God's wrath upon unbelievers that culminates with the second coming of Christ. Based on Daniel chapter 9, I believe that it's a seven-year period, a literal seven-year period. I believe that this is a a period of God's wrath that is being poured out upon unbelievers, upon even all of humanity, and the tribulation period leads to Christ's second coming. So the tribulation is a seven-year period that culminates with the second coming of Christ. In this seven-year period, God's wrath is being poured out upon humanity. Now, what is the purpose of the the tribulation? Why does the tribulation exist? This is really important for our understanding of the book as a whole. The tribulation is meant to punish mankind for his rebellion and to drive mankind to repentance. Especially the Jewish people. Especially the Jewish people. That's an important note on the end. Because I believe that primarily the tribulation is for the Israelites. I believe that the tribulation, one of the primary purposes of it, is for the the chosen people of God, the Jewish people, the Israelites. Why does this seven-year period exist? This is why. To punish mankind for his rebellion, and in that punishment, to drive mankind to repentance. Repentance. That is especially true and especially applied to the Jewish people, and we're gonna see that in Revelation chapter seven tonight. The tribulation is a downward spiral. The longer the tribulation goes on, the worse it gets. We're gonna see things tonight, and they're bad. But as we progress through the book, It's gonna get worse and worse as more and more of God's wrath is poured out and there is more reason for mankind to repent and yet what we're gonna see throughout this book is that they will not repent. There are some who will, but God continues to punish humanity because they will not repent of their deeds. An important question is, where is the church in all of this? I've talked about the tribulation, how it's unique for Israel. Where is the church? An important question to ask is, we're going to look at the tribulation. Are you going to be there? I don't know. I don't know. My entire life, I've held to the view of pre-tribulationism, which is that the church will be raptured before the tribulation. Believers... The true church will not be here for the tribulation. The more I study, the more questions I have on this issue. I don't believe that scripture teaches a clear timing of when the tribulation will take place. We're going to see some text tonight that I believe point strongly to a mid-tribulational rapture. Um, I, love, I love John MacArthur said, said he's a pre-tribulationist, but if the tribulation comes and he's not gone, then he's going to be a mid-tribulationist. And if the mid-tribulation comes and he's not gone, he's become a post-tribulationist and then a pre-wrath tribulationist. And so I think scripture, scripture is not clear on the timing of the rapture. So will we be here for the tribulation? I don't know. I don't know. I don't believe that we'll be here for all of it. I think I can say that with certainty, that there is a point during the tribulation where we are raptured. The options are, is the church gone before the tribulation starts? Is the church gone halfway through the seven-year period? Is the church gone at the end of the seven-year period? Those are kind of the three broad categories of interpretation. I don't think that we can stand with confidence on any one of those. There are good arguments for them, and there's great arguments against them. What's important, I believe, is that the book of Revelation is a book about the end times. And you know what the book of Revelation has to say about the rapture? Almost nothing. I think that that's insightful for us. When we're talking about the end times, it's not within the desire of Jesus, it's not, not in, the, in, the, in the mind of John, to talk about the rapture. So I think it's a mistake for us to get stuck and make it a dogmatic issue on when exactly the church is raptured, when the church is taken to heaven. I think what we need to look at is what happens in the book of Revelation and say, oh snap, I want to be on God's side. Whether I'm here or not, I don't want to be the enemy of God when this time rolls around. So, my belief is that Revelation chapter 6 verse 16 describes the seven year period known as the tribulation. As we walk through Revelation chapter 6 verse 16, my leaning is that these chapters are a chronological explanation of what's going to take place during those seven years. I believe that as we read through these chapters, we're going to see a generally chronological order of what's happening during the tribulation. Okay. So the further we go, the further in the tribulation we are. I think that's a general principle. I also think there's a lot of room for debate on that. Not all, not even within this church. The, the pastors on staff here, what, that wouldn't be like a, what I just said some of them would disagree with. And that's okay. That's okay. There's room for disagreement here. What, what we do see is it progressively getting worse no matter which interpretation you take. The longer the tribulation goes on, the worse it gets. So I think we're going to see a chronological progression through Revelation chapter 6 through 16. But we're also going to see some topical side notes where we're moving through the tribulation. But we're going to take a break for a minute as we're moving through. Maybe after the seven seals tonight, we're going to see a break. And we're just going to talk about 144,000 people for a minute. We'll talk about what that means. And then we're going to talk about a worship scene in heaven for a minute. We'll talk about what that means. And then we jump back into a presentation of what's happening through the tribulation. So that was an introduction. And we are now way behind schedule. We won't have to do this every time. But I think it's helpful and essential for me to explain to you how I'm interpreting what I'm getting here. Okay, I'm not pulling rabbits out of a hat. This is based on other scriptures I believe this is a faithful interpretation of the book. What we're going to see tonight are two movements in the opening of the book of God's judgment. Two movements in the opening of the book of God's judgment. Number one, Number one. suffering is initiated upon man. The first movement in the opening of the book of God's judgment is that suffering is initiated upon man. In Revelation chapter 6, we see the beginning of the tribulation. The tribulation is a time of God's wrath being poured out upon humanity, and so in Revelation chapter 6, what we see is that suffering is initiated, it's began upon mankind. The church may be here, the church may not be here, but I think what we see in Revelation chapter 6 is challenging to us either way. So, what do we see in the initiation of suffering that is being poured out upon man? Well, the first thing that we're going to see is a unit of four. We're going to see seven seals, but it's It's going to begin with a unit of four, and it's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is one of the most well-known scenes in the book of Revelation. The four horsemen in the book of, of, of Revelation, I believe, represent the beginning of the tribulation. The first horseman comes out, and in verse 1, we see that he he is told to come. In verse 2, he is riding a white horse, and he who sat upon it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. This first horseman comes out, and he has authority. He's given a crown. He has a bow, but most likely, the person who's given authority in this scene doesn't actually initiate war. Why is that? Because the next horseman that comes out, again, I believe this is chronological, the next horseman brings war. So this person, this first horseman that comes out, he has a bow, but there is no war taking place yet. He is given a crown, he has authority. I believe that this person that initiates the tribulation is closely related to the Antichrist. I believe that the first horseman is, is perhaps the Antichrist himself. A- at a bare minimum, I think he's, he's, he, this would be like the system in which the Antichrist arises. Now, the Antichrist is an individual that we're going to see throughout this book. And this is a person who is going to draw, worship to himself, and persecute those who do not worship him. He is going to be an enemy of Israel. He's going to be an enemy of Christians. He is anti-Christ. We're going to see a lot of details about him. We're not told almost anything initially. So we're not going to talk much about him right now. What we're told is that there's a person who has authority. He comes on the scene and his desire is to conquer. His desire is to rule. Look at the end of verse 2. He went out conquering and to conquer. But he does so seemingly without war. That leads to a second seal. The second seal is war. War. So I believe the Antichrist is on the scene, and then we get to the next seal. Jesus breaks the second seal, and a second living creature calls out, Come, and another red horse went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. So this rider, he takes away the peace that is on the earth. Note that when the first rider is done, the earth is at peace. The Antichrist will come in the name of peace. Peace. But the second rider will remove that peace from the earth. Look at what happens when that rider removes peace from the earth. Men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. All this rider has to do is remove peace from the earth, and the sinfulness of man takes over, and mankind begins to slay itself. War begins to dominate the earth. This is what's coming at the beginning of the tribulation. The Antichrist is established and war begins to dominate the scene. Then a third seal is broken. The third seal in verses five and six. I looked and behold, a a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. That terminology is terminology of a famine. Which so often follows a war. War often leads to famine throughout history, and we see that being true here. The Antichrist is established. There is war that that, that defines the world, and that leads to famine. Famine is is a lack of food. There's not enough resources for people to eat. How do we know that? Well, what we're told the, the the voice that we hear says, a quart of wheat for a denarius. A denarius is one day's wage. A quart of wheat is enough food for one person to eat for about a meal. At this point in time, enough for a meal for a person is that he must work for an entire day. That terminology means that food is incredibly scarce and therefore incredibly costly. What follows on the tales of war, the third seal, is famine. That then leads to the fourth seal. The fourth seal is broken and the fourth living creature says come and john looks and there is an ashen horse a pale horse and he who sat on it had the name death and hades was following with him look at this authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth The Antichrist is established, war takes over the earth, famine takes over the earth, and then death, unlike ever before in the history of the world, appears on the scene. Death is personified here, he's riding on this horse, and he has the power to wipe out a quarter of the population. The way that he is given to do this is through the sword, that is war, through famine, which is already on the scene, through pestilence, that's like sickness and disease, and, get this, by wild beasts. Death appears on the scene as the fourth seal and he just starts killing people. How he kills people is with some of the things that are already in play, but also things that we haven't seen before. Wild beasts are killing people. Now, I believe that this is to be interpreted, as we'll see through most of the book, as literally as possible. I believe that when we read wild beasts are killing people, that that means on the earth there are wild beasts killing people. I think we get into a dangerous zone when we start saying, that sounds weird, so it can't possibly mean that. We're going to see some crazy stuff here. This is divine Intervention in which God is pouring out his wrath upon humanity. This is the beginning of the tribulation. There is war dominating the earth. There is famine. There's not enough food for you to eat meals every day. And a quarter of the world is dead. Think about that. The population of the world today is somewhere between seven and eight billion. Two billion people wiped out. Two billion people wiped out. This is this is unbelievable. This is the first scene that we see. There is the conqueror, the Antichrist who comes in peace. There is war, there is famine, and there is death. That then leads to a fifth seal being broken. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony that they had maintained. When the fifth seal is broken, John, his eyes go from what's happening on the earth to what's happening in heaven. And his eyes go under an altar. And under an altar, there is a group of martyrs. Martyrs are people who had died for what they believe. We're told why they died. They died at the end of verse nine because of their testimony and because of the word of God. Those are the exact terms that explain why John has been banished to the island of Patmos. These believers are dying because they testify to who Jesus Christ is. They're in heaven. And the question they ask God is the content of the song that we sang earlier tonight. God, how long? How long, they ask. Look at verse 10. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So what happened is that there's men on the earth who killed these people, but the men on the earth are still alive. They haven't been killed by what's taken place thus far in the tribulation. And and these martyrs are looking and they're saying, God, they killed us. Why have you not avenged us? How long are you going to wait until you judge them for their sin? They know that the end of the time has come. And they're asking God, "How how much longer must we wait? Look at verse 11, there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So what we're told is that these martyrs are told to wait. God says, I will avenge you. I will judge those who killed you. But not until the total number uh, of those who are going to be killed have been killed. This is a fascinating seal that is broken because the question is, what is the wrath that's being poured out, right? We see the wrath in the first four. The the Antichrist shows up, there's war, there's famine, there's death. But this fifth seal, the martyrs are just pleading with God. How is this God's wrath being poured out? Well, some have taken this to mean that the the seal is that Christians are being killed. I don't think that's smart in, in understanding the book of Revelation, though. God's wrath in the tribulation is not being poured out upon believers. God's wrath is being poured out upon the world. I think it's then best for us to understand this, to be that these martyrs, the seal, is that the martyrs are asking God for justice and God hears their cry and he is going to avenge them. Not only is he going to punish those who killed them, but those who were killed, he gives them rest. He blesses them while they were in heaven, and while they wait, God ensures them that mankind is ushering in God's judgment. And so the seal is that God hears the martyrs cry and will answer their call. He will punish their killers while he blesses those who are killed. That then leads to a sixth and a terrible seal. Verse 12. I looked when he broke this sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made with hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. This is unbelievable. The sixth sixth seal is broken and an earthquake begins. An earthquake happens and cosmic chaos. Stars are falling out of the sky. The sky itself is splitting like a scroll. The earthquake is moving mountains and islands are being moved out of their place. This seal is broken and it is chaos on the world and in heaven. Chaos to the point that all of mankind is terrified they are terrified look at what they say This is everybody. Verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man. That's everyone. You know what they do when this is happening? Look at the second half of verse 15. They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us. Fall on us mountains to hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? When this seal is broken, these men hide in any rocks that they can find, and they beg the mountains to kill them. Because they recognize what is happening as divine judgment. Isn't that fascinating? They they see that God the Father and God the Son is punishing them, and they don't want to face Him. They don't repent. They prefer to die. They say mountains kill us because we cannot stand before this God. Sheer terror and horror. Who is able to stand, they ask. Who on earth could stand before this kind of power? There is nothing more dangerous than standing against God. There is nothing more dangerous than standing against God. Students, I I don't know. I don't know if the church is going to be here or not what i do know is that when this is happening you want to be on god's side you do not want to be the enemy of god when he is pouring out his wrath upon humanity unless you hear that and say i mean when this stuff starts happening i'll repent I'll, i'll 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 respond when stuff starts getting crazy I wanna, I've want shared this with you before. Jump forward for me. This is a quote from J.C. Ryle that I think is so helpful. Do you, do you think that you can serve lusts and pleasures in your beginning and then go and serve God with ease at the very end? This is so practical for students. I dare say that you are reckoning on a late repentance. You know not what you are doing. Repentance and faith are gifts of God and gifts that he often withholds when they have long been offered in vain. I grant you that true repentance is never too late, but I warn you, late repentance is seldom true. If you wait until you see these events happening to respond to the grace of God, you may very well be too late. These events are written to drive us to repentance. I hope, I pray, that you don't see these scenes as something that's like fun. And and cool and enjoyable like this is just fun to read and fun to hear preached. These scenes are not meant to be enjoyable. These scenes are meant to strike horror. These scenes are meant to bring terror to those who hear them. These scenes are meant to be terrifying that those who hear this and read this say, oh my, what a God, who would dare stand against him? When he pours out his wrath, there is no man that can stand. There is death, and there is pain, and there is suffering, and there is terror. These scenes are meant to scare us. When this happens, you don't want to be against God. Okay, quickly, that is a scene of the suffering initiated upon man. That is the beginning of the tribulation. I believe that that earthquake is a marker of the second half of the tribulation. I believe in the scene that we just covered, we covered the first half of the six-year period. The rest of what we're going to focus on drills down on the second half of the tribulation. and, And here's the cliff notes for you. It gets way worse. By comparison, what's seen in the beginning of the tribulation is magnified in what happens in the second half. So, we then jump in chapter 7 into two visions. We stop with the seals for a minute. Remember, the seven seals. We've only seen six of them. But John takes a break. And this is what he's going to do regularly throughout this book. Jump forward for me, Jack. In this second Scene in Revelation chapter 7, we see not only that suffering is initiated upon man, but that salvation is intended for man. In this scene, in which we are meant to be driven to the cross, suffering is initiated upon man, but in all of this, salvation is intended for man. Now, there's two scenes that we see here. The first one is a scene of 144,000 individuals. We're, we're, we're told in the beginning of chapter 7 that there's a break that the four angels on the four corners of the earth hold back the winds so that, so that nothing destructive happens. There's a break in the destruction. All of these seals are being opened and all of these terrifying events are taking place, but then we stop. And John is taken to see 144,000 individuals that are sealed. They are sealed by God. We're told in verse 3, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And so, 144,000 individuals are sealed. I believe that they're sealed for salvation. That they are set apart, that they are marked as those who will be saved. Now we're told about the ethnicity of these people and it's so important to our understanding of the book of Revelation and specifically the tribulation. These 144,000 people aren't from all different tribes and tongues and nations. These 144,000 people are Jewish. Look at verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And you heard Mark read through it. 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe. Now, I think, again, the best approach is to interpret this as literally as possible. I think there's probably gonna be 144,000 Jews that are set aside, that are marked, that God will seal, that God will save. This, I believe, is a primary purpose of the book of, of, the book of Revelation, and specifically the tribulation. That through the tribulation, God is going to draw his people, Israel, back to himself. In Jeremiah chapter 30, we're told about the time of Israel's trouble that will lead to Israel's repentance. Jacob's trouble and Jacob's repentance. That is the tribulation, and the tribulation will lead to the repentance of Israel. When the tribulation is done, Israel will identify Jesus Christ as the Messiah and they will be saved and restored to their position as the prominent people of God. Throughout the tribulation, God's wrath that he is pouring out accomplishes that goal. Israel is driven back to realize that Christ is Lord. We're told of a second scene and I believe that it's different. A multitude of martyrs enjoy God. 144,000 Jews are sealed by God. And then this scene closes with a multitude of martyrs enjoying God. So what we're told of next carries us through the end of this chapter. In verse 9, we're told that he looks and behold, there's a multitude that no one could count. Every nation, every tribe, every people, and every tongue is standing before the throne, before the Lamb. They're clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hand. They start singing a song. Salvation belongs to our God. Our God is the one who saves. The elders saw them in chapter 4 and 5. Guess what? They're back on their faces again. The elders fall down on their faces before the throne. They say, God, everything is yours. Who are these people that are worshiping God? Look at verse 14. This is great. Start in verse 13. Then one of the elders answered and asked John a question. Do you know who these people are? And John responds in verse 14. He says, my Lord, you know. Which is just great advice for any time you're taking a test and you don't know the answer. (laughs) Teacher calls on you in class. What are you? And you say, you know. (laughs) That's what John does here. It's the ultimate cop-out. He looks back at the elder and he's like, you know the answer. The elder does. The elder tells him. These are the people, verse 14. These are those who have come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb these are believers who have been killed in the tribulation for their faith these are martyrs and there's so many of them that john can't even count all of this pain and suffering is being poured out the martyrs are asking God how much longer. And there's more and more people dying for Christ. But here's what I want you to know. As God's wrath is being poured out, the gospel is still going forth. And people are believing. They're believing and they're getting killed and more believing. In the time of the tribulation, it is difficult to remain alive as a Christian. One of the things that's going to mark the Antichrist is that he's going to kill anyone that won't worship him. You won't worship the Antichrist, you die. You die. I think most, if not all believers, will die during this time. But they will die, and they will go to heaven, and they will worship God. They will enjoy God forever. So jump forward for me, Jack, and we will wrap up with this. Those who remain faithful to death will enjoy God forever. Those who remain faithful to death will enjoy God forever. God's wrath is poured out. But he's focused on salvation. Salvation of his people Israel, who he's drawing back to himself, and those who are dying for the gospel of Jesus Christ are in heaven and they're worshiping him in pure joy and in pure pleasure. Next week we'll continue in the seven trumpets, and we're gonna see, we're gonna see the seventh seal, which I think is the seven trumpets.